0: John chapter 15, that's John 15, and if you need a Bible, there's one on your table. We are going to cover verses 9 through 27. So my goal for the day is to complete this chapter of John's Gospel. Then take a break, beginning next week, and launch into our Psalms for the Summer, and we will begin with Psalm 84, and we will go through Psalm 98 or 100 this summer. So my hope is that we will be through two-thirds of the Psalms, which means then we'll have about four more summers. <laughs> if we can hold out that blog. I remember when I started, I asked everybody, how many people will be here when we do 150 Psalms? And I raised my hand and Audrey raised me. Anybody else <laughs> raised <them? laughs> If we can make four more years, we will be through 150 different Psalms. And then we'll come back after Labor Day, and we'll pick up at John chapter 16, which is a chapter that deals exclusively with the Holy Spirit, and which is a very important and a very interesting chapter. So where we've been so far, in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus teaches his disciples after he eats the Last Supper with them, And the main theme that he's dealing with is love. And I would say that if you could summarize the chapters so far, he tells us that we're to love one another. And so now what he does is he gives us an analogy. And so in chapter 15, in verse 9, he says this, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. So Jesus follows his Father's pattern. So when he tells us to love one another, we are, in a sense, loving because God is love. And God loved Jesus, and now Jesus loves us, and we are to love each other. So that's the pattern that's established by the Father. Now, how did the Father love Jesus? Well, he loved him as the Father loves a son. And if you've had a son, you just think of what you really wished you could have done with your son, not what you necessarily did with your son. Uh, What a perfect father would do with his son, he would uh, protect him. And God has protected Jesus throughout his life and his ministry. People tried to kill him all along the way, and God just somehow worked it out that Jesus was able to survive and be protected. He gave Jesus power. You would give your son maybe a credit card in your name and give him the authority to use that when he needs it. Or give him a $100 bill to keep in his wallet in case there's ever an emergency that he would need. Only use it when he needs it. The Father has given Jesus power and authority to use. And Jesus uses it when, in those situations when he knows his Father wants him to use it. He heals people. He casts out demons. He comforts people. He teaches people. And this love that God has for Jesus is based on a relationship. Relationship is always based on love. I don't love my neighbor's kids. Now, when we say love, I'm not talking about an emotion. I'm talking about sacrificial giving. Now, I may do something for the neighbor, but, you know, it's not the constant thing I do all the time because I don't have a relationship with my neighbor's kids. So, this love that the Father has for Jesus is based on a relationship. And that's how Jesus loves the apostles. Now, one thing I want you to realize, when we're reading these passages, these Five chapters. Jesus is talking to the apostles. Oftentimes we act like he's talking to us. But who was he talking to? Eleven guys who were eating with him. Okay, They apply to us. These principles apply to us. But always remember, he's speaking directly to the apostles. And so then look what he does. He uh, gives them a command. He says, abide in my love. Do you see that? In verse 19, in verse 9, abide in my love. This is their responsibility. I would say it's our responsibility as well. If he says abide in my love, guess what that seems to indicate? It's possible not to abide in his love. It's possible to uh, fall away or reject his love. Uh, Judas rejects Jesus' love, doesn't he? Jesus trusts Jesus. Uh, Ju- Judas, he empowers Judas to cast out demons. He empowers Judas to heal. He does exactly what his father did for him to Judas. And guess what? Judas spurns his love. He does <laughs> not abide in his love. So you can reject love. And so I believe that when he says abide in my love, that is not only a commandment, but in a sense, it's a warning. Okay. Now, how do we abide in his love? Look at verse 10. What does that involve? Watch this. If you love, if you keep my commandments, you will what? Abide in my love. So now we see that obedience equals abiding in his love. Abiding in his love equals obedience. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my what? Commandments, you see. So to abide in his love means to obey Jesus. It involves his ethical teachings, it involves his, uh, his, uh, that we should care for each other, sacrificial giving, and all this kind of stuff. So to abide in His love, what does that involve? Obedience. Obedience to what? In verse 10. Commandments. Okay? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. So Jesus is the perfect example of how we abide in someone's love. You want to know what it means to abide in, love, in Jesus' love? and All you have to do is watch how Jesus keeps his Father's commandments. The Father says to Jesus, do this. The Father says to Jesus, do that. And Jesus does it. Jesus says, do this and do that. And if we do it, we abide in his love. Now, he's selling that to the apostles, but it certainly applies to us. So, he expects us to obey him. Now, look at the purpose of all these instructions in verse 11. These things I've spoken to you, why? Here it is. Here's a purpose statement. That, so that, in order that, watch, it's for our benefit. In order that, my love may remain in you, or that my joy may remain in you, rather, and that your joy may be full. So he wants us to keep his commandments for our benefit. And Two kinds of joy is listed there. Two categories of joy is listed, are listed. Look what they are in verse 11. My joy, that's Jesus' joy, and he wants that to remain in us, which means, guess what? Jesus' joy might not remain in us. Okay. And then, your joy in verse 11, and what he wants is our joy to be full. So we can be overflow. we can overflow with the joy of Jesus. But, it's based on our being what? Obedient. Which means to abide in His love. Does that make sense? So, if you see Christians that always have no joy, they're not overflowing with joy, we know something about those people, don't we? It shows us that those kinds of people are not abiding in His love. They're not obeying Jesus. And then look at verse 12. This is my commandment. Okay, you want to know what You're supposed to do what you're supposed to obey. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, it's very interesting. In verse 10, notice the word commandments are plural. Do you see this? Plural. But in verse 12, notice the commandment is singular. And that commandment is that we're to love one another. Love summarizes all the commandments. That one word, love, is, in a sense, the summary or uh, the totality of all the commandments. Remember when they said, Jesus, what should we do? What commandments should we keep? And he said, here's the commandment. First of all, you should what? Love God. And then what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice it's the one word, love. All comprehensive love. Love for God. Love for each other. See, So that is the commandment. We're to love. Now notice, in verse 9, it says the Father loves Jesus. Do you see that? And then in verse 9, he says, as I loved you. Jesus loves us. The Father loved Jesus. Jesus loves us. And then in verse 12, look what it says. We're to love one another. So the Father loves, Jesus loves, and we're to love. Right there. and The Father is the pattern for Jesus. Jesus is the pattern for us. We're to love one another. We should be the pattern for our children. We should be the pattern for others who are looking to us. Then in verse 13, when he does, he talks about a certain kind of love, the measure of love. What is the fullness of love? What's the greatest kind of love? Look what he says in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. The commandment's to love one another. Verse 13. Greater love has no, one, has no one than this. Than to lay down one's life for his friends. So, we're to love one another and you know, the greatest kind of love is laying down your life for your friends. Now this presupposes, what he says is to the apostles. This presupposes that they're going to face persecution. If you're going to lay down your life for somebody. They're going to face persecution. And they need to expect to face persecution. Do we know somebody, for example, who laid down their life for us? Jesus laid down his life for us, and now we are going to have to necessarily lay down our lives for others. That is the supreme act. It's a voluntary act. When soldiers go into battle, guess what they do? Putting their life on the line, voluntarily. Not under a draft, not through inscription, voluntarily. Put their lives on the line. So he's talking about a willingness to lay down your life for others. And in this case, it's for your friends. That's the object of our love, is our friends, notice. Not just for strangers. And then he says this in verse 14. You're my friends. You're my friends. If, look at that. You're my friends if, if what? You're my friends, verse 14, if you do whatever I command you to do. And what does he command us to do? Love. Obedience equals love. Okay. Now, is Judas Iscariot his friend? No, he didn't obey Jesus. <laughs> so, you can see that Judas spurns Jesus' love. So, we're to lay down our lives for our friends. And here's a friend. A friend is somebody, in this case... That does the will of Jesus now notice that in friendship there's a sort of been the, there's been a the change of status okay so if you look at verse uh, 15 look what it says no longer do I call you servants there was one time that people were just servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. So now we see there's been a change of status from being a servant to being a friend. Now that's the difference between a servant and the difference between a servant and a friend is that a friend is in on your secrets. Okay? Jesus reveals Uh, information to the apostles from the Father and they're privy to this inside information. You know, think of your very best friend. That's the person that you tell your secrets to. That's the person you say, hey, let me tell you what's going on. Uh, Servants are not part of the loop. So if just imagine living in uh, maybe uh, England 300 years ago with servants. Even a hundred years ago, with servants and a whole staff, the staff isn't in on the secrets. Now they may be listening in on the door, you know, to see what the master has to say. But the master doesn't reveal the secrets to the servants. The master talks to his friends about inside information about deals. So Jesus has revealed all that the Father has told him, and he's passed it on to the apostles. Now they don't understand it, you know, but he has passed it on. So, that's the difference between a friend and a servant. So, Jesus considers them friends. Now, what we have here is we see that friendship involves something. It involves responsibility, and it involves blessing. So, if you look at verse 16, look what it says. You did not choose me. You did not choose me. Meaning, as a friend. But I chose you. And I appointed you. So, notice that Jesus is the one who chose the apostles. They didn't choose him. They didn't come up and start following him. Jesus came to Peter. Jesus came to John. He says, come and follow me. And guess what? They followed. So, they did not choose him. He chose them. Um, Friends are chosen. And I bet you that all of our parents said to us one time or another... Choose your friends carefully or wisely or whatever, right? So, here is Jesus saying, I've chosen you as a friend and he reveals certain things to the disciples. Now, why does he choose them and why does he appoint them in verse 16? Watch this. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you. Here's the purpose number one. The first that. You see the word that? It's always a key in certain sentences. Here's the reason I chose you and appointed you. Number one purpose, that, so that, in order that, you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. First of all, he chose them to go. He chose them for ministry. Second of all, he chose them for maturity, that they would grow, that they would go and that they would grow. Ministry and maturity, and they would grow fruit. That there would, their ministry would be fruitful, and that their ministry, their fruit would remain. Uh, it's the story of the seeds going on the ground, where uh, you know, plant pops up, and the sun comes out and burns it, doesn't remain. Jesus wants them to have a fruitful ministry that has solid results. That's purpose number one. He chose them for ministry. He chose them for maturity, for fruitfulness. And then the second that in verse, 13, verse 16 is that whatever you ask or in order that or so that whatever you ask the Father in my name He may give it. So notice there is a responsibility. He chooses us for ministry. That's a responsibility. He chooses us for blessings. The second purpose of Him choosing us is that we can ask the Father anything in His name and He will do it. Now, this all goes back to the opening sentences that we're to abide in His love. If we abide in His love, this is the blessing. To abide in His love means to be what? Obedient, keep His commandments. And here is one of the results. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, if our prayers aren't answered, what does this say? Why aren't they answered? See, there's a, sort of a stipulation here, isn't it? It's not just a blanket statement, whatever you ask in my, my name, God may give it to you, but there's something that precedes that, and that's that we are to what? Abide in his love, and we're to be obedient. See, So, uh, obedience leads to answer prayer. And Jesus was 100% obedient every time he asked God to do something he did. And that's the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus acting as a human on earth, not acting as God, not pulling down all of his power as God, but operating as a man and depending on the Father and the Holy Spirit to minister to him, he was so obedient to the Father, he abided in his love, and whatever he asks God to do. That's why our prayers aren't always answered. And that's terrible. So, I've been thinking about this for a long time, this whole issue of prayer. you know. And I think that one of the things that God wants me and I think all of us to do, is just to be more like Jesus. The more we can be like Jesus, the more loving we can be, the more we do what he wants us to do, the more we can set aside our own agendas and our own... self-righteousness and all those kinds of things and just be a humble servant of Jesus the more we're going to see God producing fruit in our life and answer prayer in our life and that's really what we should all be striving to do. Into verse 17 he says into this section here verse 17 he says these things I command you that you love one another. He just reiterates that. And it serves sort of as as a transition into this next section. Because in the next section, what he does is he goes from the theme of love to the theme of hate. And he goes from how we minister to one another in love to how, the from, let's say, how we minister to one another in love and that relationship we have with one another to our relationship with the world. And we see that those two relationships are a lot different. So look what he says in verse 18. This is our ministry to the world, our relationship to the world. Look what he says in verse 18. If the world hates you, you know, we are to love one another, but guess what? The world's not going to love you. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This is just another way of saying, hey, to the apostles, you can expect trouble. (laughs) When you get out there and you begin to minister and you try to share the gospel and heal people and and you see God answering your prayers, don't think everybody's going to stand up and start clapping and being happy for what you're doing. They're going to hate you, but they're going to hate you because they first hated me. So don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard when the world turns against you because they turned against me. And obviously Jesus had not done anything wrong. So then he gives an explanation. Watch this. Why did they hate you? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. See, the world loves. It's not that there's no love in the world. There is love in the world. The world loves its own. But it doesn't love God's own. It doesn't love you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, he says to the apostles, Therefore, the world hates you. So we have two categories here. Those who are of the world and those who are not of the world. Two categories. Of the world, not of the world. Now, every one of us was born of the world. Right? Born just human beings. We were born into the world. And guess what? We were born of the world. And we go to school and we're influenced by the world. And then somewhere along the way we hear the gospel and we are born again into God's kingdom. And now we're not of the world any longer. Our allegiance now is to the kingdom of God. Notice our allegiance has changed. It's changed from the world and worldly things to kingdom things. See, So now we're not of the world. And because we're not of the world, suddenly the world hates us. Those people we had as friends maybe before we were Christians? Suddenly they're no longer friends. Suddenly the you know the people that knew you and opportunities that you had stop coming because they don't like you anymore. But why is that? Because we all like people like ourselves and we spurn people that aren't like ourselves. That's just our natural tendency. That's how the world operates. That's the basis of prejudice. Why do you think Hitler hated the Jews? Because they weren't like him. They weren't Aryan. See? The world loves its own. If you're like the world, it'll love you. If you were an Aryan, Hitler would have loved you. See. But if you're not like them, the world hates you. And we're not like the world. See, So we've been bought out of the world. And as a result of that, the world turns on us. Because it believes that we've turned on it. One of the things. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you? Oh, I remember this back in chapter 13. A servant is not greater than his master. So if Jesus was persecuted and hated, guess what? Don't expect to escape. That's what he says to the apostles. Don't think that you're going to be the exception. You're not greater than Jesus. If he was persecuted, you'll be persecuted. He says in verse 20, If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. Just expect it. That's going to happen. The world is going to turn against you. But, he also says, on the other hand, you will have some successes. When you preach the gospel, there will be people who hate you. Says the apostle. But on the other hand, you will have some successes. So you see that right at the end of verse 20. He says, if they kept my word, they will, what? Keep your word. There will be people who respond to the gospel and get saved. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, whoever it is. So, yes, expect the world to persecute you. If they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute you. But there will be some successes. If they kept my word, I can guarantee you that you'll have some successes too. They'll keep your word. So there you have this positive... Light in the midst of some darkness there, and that's very interesting, isn't it? So expect to go out and be rejected. Expect to go out and be accepted, and that's what he is telling the apostles at this point. It applies to us as well, but mainly to the apostles. Now look at verse twenty-one. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. It's not because they just hate you as a human being. You might be a nice person. It's they do it because you're representing Jesus Christ. Because they do not know him who sent them. So the Jews that Jesus preached to rejected Jesus. Jesus represented the Father. The fact that they rejected Jesus means they rejected the Father. They didn't know the Father. And that's why people persecute the apostles and those that minister in his name. is because they represent him. It's not that they hate us just because, you know, they hate us. So imagine this message for John's audience. John is writing this to a group of churches in 95 AD. And he's saying in verse 21, All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And John's audience is wondering, why are we being persecuted? Now remember, John's writing this in 95. Where's John, by the way, at this time? Where is he writing this from? Huh? He's writing this from the Isle of Patmos. He's been persecuted. He's been exiled. He's in prison, in a sense. In this lonely, you know, volcanic ash island. Abandoned there. And he's writing this. And he's writing this to an audience. And Jesus is saying, hey, you want to know why you're being persecuted? Why John is being persecuted? Here's the reason is one of the eleven that Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is saying, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. While he's writing this, he's already he's under persecution right now, isn't he? And his audience can expect to be under persecution because Rome was not a very nice place and neither was the Jewish leadership who had in cahoots with Rome, all looking out for themselves and hating the Christian movement. And we've just been very fortunate, those of us who live in the United States, which has been a free country, but this becomes much more relevant to us now than 20 years ago, 40 years ago. I think that we can expect much more persecution in the days ahead. And this passage right here should be a message for us. It should be a guarantee, it should be a warning, and we should take it to heart so it's on, our, on his account that we are being persecuted. Now Jesus says something very, very unusual in the next verse. Look at this. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have had no sin. What? If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. What in the world is he talking about? What does he mean by this? It seems that he's saying had he not come, they would have been held guilty for their sin. What's he talking about? It's a hard, one of Jesus' hard sayings. But maybe it could be explained this way. If you walk across a person's property, private property, are you guilty of trespassing if there's no sign posted that says no trespass yeah. See, it has to be posted. If it's not posted, guess what? You're, you're, you're trespassing, but you're not guilty of trespassing. You're not held responsible for it. Hey, had Adam and Eve eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would they have been guilty had God not said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? <laughs> See, when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes and he ministers in the word, speaks on behalf of God, shows God's power, and now they're without excuse. You know, had, he, had they not seen that, you could have understood them not accepting the, the message. But he came and they saw the word, and he revealed God's truth to them, and he revealed God's power to them, and they rejected. it. very hard section right here. But he preached the word. And when he preached the word, that was bad news if they rejected it. But good news if they accepted it. He preached the word and were, he exposed their sin. But he also gave a remedy for their sin. <laughs> died for the sins of the world. So what we have is that because he came and they rejected him, based on their experience, they're without excuse. They rejected him as the messiah. I think that's something it me. It's a hard passage. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered... No, I just went back to chapter 14. That would uh, chapter 15, verse 23. He who hates me hates the Father also. Okay, now look. In verse 18, if they hated you, they hated me. Notice, they hate me. Verse 18, they hate me. In verse 18, they hate you. In verse 19, they hate you. And then in verse 23, they not only hate Jesus, they not only hate you, but look at this. Anyway, hate Jesus hates what? The Father. So notice there's the Jesus is hated, the Father is hated, and the Christians are hated. Everybody that's associated with Jesus and the Father are hated. It's very interesting. Now look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. Let's let's see. Let's go to verse 24 first. Then I need to go back to 22. Look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. So he's going to go back and he's going to talk about that again. He says, "See, if I hadn't done the things that I had done among them, which no one else could do, Jesus did things that no one else could do, proving that he was the Messiah. Had he not done those things, they would have They would not have had uh, guilt. But now they have no excuse. So in verse 24 he says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. Now look back at verse 22. In verse 22 he said, If I had not come and spoken to them. Do you see that? If I had not come and spoken to them. Look at verse 24. If I had not come among them, if I had not done the works, Look, if I had not done the works, verse 22, if I had not spoken to them, verse 24, if I had not done the works, verse 22, words, verse 24, works, verse 22, gospel, verse 22, verse 24, miracles, see that? Two categories, his words and his works. The results are the same, though. Look, in verse 22. But now they have no excuse for their sin. See, look, if I had not come and spoken, that's the words, they would have no sin. They would have no sin. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works, which no one else did, they would have no sin. So, but he did do the works, and he did preach the word, and therefore they do have sin. So the result is exactly the same, words and works. Now, at the end of verse 24, he says, But now they have seen, and they've also hated me and my Father. Because Jesus, when he came, he preached and he revealed the Father. They reject Jesus, they reject the Father. He came and he did the works of the Father. They reject Jesus' works, and thus they reject Jesus' the Father's works. Thus they hate Jesus and they hate the Father. So the reason for all this rejection is found in verse 25. Look at this. But this happened. Why? Why did all this rejection happen? Here's the reason. That. See the word that? That's your purpose word. In order that the word, meaning the scriptures, might be fulfilled, which was written in their law, the Jewish law, Old Testament, they hated me without a cause. That's a quote from Psalm 35, 19, and Psalm 69, 4. They hated me without a cause. So why did they reject Jesus? Why did they hate Jesus? What was the reason? No cause whatsoever. What did he do to hurt them? Nothing. Instead, he revealed things to them that they never knew before. He revealed the way of salvation. And he did works among them that they had never seen before. And still they hated him and they rejected him. And thus they rejected him without a cause. And therefore... They're responsible for their sin and they're without excuse. So that's the argument that John is making here regarding the rejection of Jesus. And by the way, if they rejected Jesus, they'll reject the apostles and reject us as well. So that's what they did to Jesus. They hated him without a cause. That was in the past. Now look at this in the future. Verse 26. But when the helper, the paraclete, the comforter comes, This is in the future. Whom I shall send to you from the Father. Who is that? The Spirit of Truth. Who proceeds from the Father. Guess what He's going to do? He's going to turn things around. He's going to testify. He's going to witness for me. And you know what happens? On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit begins to witness who Jesus is and 3,000 people were saved. Notice the reversal. This divine element, the Holy Spirit coming, and uh, this divine witness produces a divine result. So things are starting to to change about a little bit. And, he says in verse 27, and you also will bear witness. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, which means from the time of John's baptism. That's how Jesus defines the beginning. You will also witness because you were with me from the beginning. So we have a divine witness in verse 26. We have a human witness in verse 27. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Had he done it in his own power, guess what kind of results would he have had? Zero. But the human witness and the divine witness joined together and Pentecost came and 3,000 souls were saved. And notice he's talking to the apostles there, right? Because they were with him from the beginning, which means from the beginning of Jesus' baptism by John. So here we see the Holy Spirit and the church work hand in hand And Peter preaches the gospel. Now, the apostles aren't with us anymore. The apostolic age is over. See? And so now, guess who has to carry on the mission? John's writing this, 95 AD. The last of the apostles. Once John's gone, guess what? No more apostles. Guess who's going to have to carry on the mission? The people that John's writing to in that first century now they're gone guess who has to carry on the mission yeah we do so that's why it applies to us and therefore we are to carry on the mission mission. will we have opposition yes yes if they rejected me they'll reject you will we have opportunity yes to preach the gospel will we have success yes If they kept my word, they'll keep your word. So this lays out his mission for us even in this Sunday school class. It's that we are to go forth and be witnesses of Christ, not doing it in our own power, but trusting that when we share the gospel and we live out the kingdom ethic, the Holy Spirit attends to it, and there is results. Will we have opposition? Yes. But in our opportunity, we'll also have successes. And so just as John and the Apostles <coughs> preached the Gospel to their generation, and John's church, churches that he wrote to, were responsible for reaching their generation with the Gospel, so we are responsible for reaching our generation with the Gospel. And then chapter 16 deals entirely with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we'll pick up after our break. Next week, Psalm eighty-four. Lord we thank you we can go down verse by verse through a text and if we're careful we're precise and we spend the time necessary to think and probe the depths of John's argument we can understand exactly what the message is for us we thank you Lord that these 11 apostles and the 12th that was chosen before Pentecost were faithful in their mission. Everyone being martyred or exiled, persecuted for their faith in one way or another. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are those who are to interpret the gospel and interpret Christ for our generation. As we face the days ahead, help us to realize, Lord, that we too may face much more persecution in our own country. we'll have opportunities to see revival break out because there will be people who accept your work. Lord, we thank you that we have been chosen by you. Didn't choose you on our own. You chose us. You touched our lives. You took the initiative. We heard the gospel. Somebody preached the gospel. And we became your disciples. Now, Lord, use us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to abide in your love by obeying Your commandments are loving each other. In Christ's name, amen.